So the calling upon our community here in the city of Boston is uh, nothing less than to bear witness individually and communally to the life and the work uh, and the reality of Jesus in the world. We're called to be, as a community, signposts to the kingdom of God, to the gift of life that is offered to all, all people in Jesus, and a signpost to God's purposes in the world to make all things right and new. And so I've been particularly struck recently um, by the fact that this calling is actually quite impossible. This missionary calling, if you will, would be quite impossible apart from living the resurrection life, individually and, again, collectively. Let me point to two factors that underscore this, I think, for us contextually. The first is the fact that we live in a world where there is a smorgasbord of options for people in terms of thinking about ultimate reality and what the meaning of life actually is. There is so much on offer out in the world that often our witness or our testimony just gets kind of muddled up into a mix, a big mix of stuff. So much that for the inquiring seeker, these things become quite almost impossible to distinguish. You get sort of dizzying and confused about what really is true or real out there. So that's a serious reality that we face. And a lot of times that smorgasbord just leads to a kind of, well, you know, God cares for everybody, just be nice and move on and trust that things will work out in the end. It it, it leads to a kind of apathy and agnosticism, if you will. That's one factor. The second factor is the fact that we live in an age and in a culture, and I would say in a city, where Christianity is not just seen as another option, but it's actually seen as the once dominant force that shaped our city. If you look around, you see all the steeples and the churches that has actually now failed. It's a failed message. It doesn't actually measure up to what it claimed to be. There's been scandal. There's just been hypocrisy. There's, there's all of these things that kind of come into the mix. So it's not like Christianity is just one thing on the table, but it's actually a thing that seems like, well, it's been tried and it's been found lacking. And so there's a lot of cynicism in Boston, to be sure, and certainly, I would say, just generally in the Western world today against Christianity. So people can turn to New Age spirituality, they turn to scientific rationalism, or something else that isn't at least this kind of oppressive dogma, the system that's been around. So with these kind of obstacles at play, there's an imperative, I would say, upon us as the church to live the kind of life that compels others to consider the reality of Jesus, So that we are called to live a kind of life that compels others to see and reckon with the reality of Jesus. Now, this is a very biblical idea. Actually, Jesus spoke about this in Matthew 5 when he said, you know, look, let your light shine before everybody so that when they see your good deeds, they'll glorify your Father on the day of his visitation. Or Peter says it in his epistle, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, there they are, they don't like you, they're not speaking good about you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And I would put it to you like this. It is the quality of our life as resurrection people that is going to do the most to draw others to the Jesus that we serve, worship, and proclaim. It's the quality of our life. In fact, our lives may be the only gospel that people will ever read in the world. And so the question, what message would people get from reading your life from the way that you or the way that I live? Now, this has been true for a long time. This isn't just true in the 21st century, though I would say it's, it's especially true today in Boston. 
But this is true back in the first centuries of the church. Christianity, instead of being perceived as a failed message, was a relatively unknown message in the early centuries of the church. And it was looked upon with suspicion in an ancient world that valued things that were old because it was new. So here in the words of a staunch second century critic of Christianity, the physician and philosopher Galen, he says this about Christians. They also number individuals who in self-discipline, and self-control in matters of food and drink, and in their keen pursuit of justice, have attained a pitch not inferior to that of genuine philosophers. Now, to understand that quote, what he's saying is Christians have lived amazingly well, in fact, as well as any of the best philosophers in our day. Now, we think of philosophers as people who think about ideas. Back in those days, philosophers were people who taught a way of life and lived and modeled a way of life. It was integrated with practical living. So that kind of observation, among others, leads the historian of the early church, Robert Louis Wilkin at UVA, to note this, that it was through their way of life, not simply their teachings, that Christians first caught the attention of larger society. The power of God at work in the lives of real people caught the attention of those around them and made them begin to reckon with whether or not their claims about this risen Christ, this risen crucified Messiah, were actually to be real and true. So the, missions, the mission that we have as Church of the Cross in the city of Boston to bear witness to the city about the reality of Jesus is a mission that can only be carried out by people who are living the resurrection life in the neighborhoods, in the, in the cities, in the workplaces where they reside, where we reside. So that's, that's us. That's you and that's me in our very ordinary daily lives in Boston, in Dorchester, Jamaica Plain, Brighton, Alston, South Hamilton, Beverly, Brookline, Somerville, Cambridge. Sorry if I forgot your neighborhood. But that's us. That's the call on our lives. So how are we going to live this resurrection life? How are we going to live this resurrection life? Listen to these words from Psalm 92. Now, there are so many ways that we could approach that question that I just gave you. In fact, much of the New Testament is written to answer that question, how are we going to live the resurrection life? We're going to stay very, very simple and focused. And I want to stay in Psalm 92, two verses out of Psalm 92 tonight. Verses 4 and 5. Listen to these words. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. So the question, how are we going to live the resurrection life so that we can carry out this mission that God has given us as his church? We immediately tend to want to answer that question by moving to actions and activities and committees and great creative initiatives and outreaches and so on and so forth. But the first place that I want us to turn in thinking about this question is what we see here in Psalm 92. is to look at the posture or the heart of the person that is encountered this kingdom God and his Christ. And what we see here in Psalm 92 is that this person of resurrection life is a person of great joy. A person of great joy. Now, I don't know if that describes you, if you describe yourself as a person of great joy, but one of the things I long for and particularly long for for this community in Eastertide is that God would literally just change our hearts and renew us and make us new, that we would be marked as a people of incredible and great and lasting and deep joy as the people of God. 
For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work, the psalmist says. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. Now, incidentally, Psalm 92 is the only psalm in the whole Psalter, 150 psalms, with the superscription that says, a song for the Sabbath. And I think that's really significant and important. The Sabbath is the day of rest. The day to stop all of our doing and to reflect upon and to rejoice in the goodness of God and of His works of creation and redemption. The Sabbath is connected to creation and redemption in Exodus and Deuteronomy. The Sabbath is for mulling over God and His works. And as the psalmist does this, he is made glad. And it evokes in him songs of joy. Now, have you ever had that moment in your life when you are so joyful, when something is so right that you can't help but start to sing, where you just kind of burst out in song? Maybe it's at the birth of a child, or maybe it's on the day of your engagement, or maybe it's the time you got through an incredibly challenging obstacle in a degree program, or at work, or wherever it might be. That's the kind of thing that the psalmist is describing here. As he mulls over, as he basks in these works that God has done, it, it just effuses, it, it flows out of him in this great song of joy. And this song of joy is resulting from his reflection upon the works of God. Now the word for work in verse 4, or for works in verse 4 and verse 5, points to God's saving activity for his people. And it also can have the nuance of God's works in creation, his actual work of creation as well. And here's the point. Resurrection, coming back to Eastertide, resurrection for us, the New Testament people of God, resurrection is for us the great sign of God's uh, of God's redemption, of his saving activity. Because as Christ died on the cross and he was raised, so also with him we died and were raised. As a pathway was made from death to life, we've been given access to that pathway. So it's a sign of God's great salvation activity for his people. And it's also a sign of his renewal of creation. It's the first act of recreation. So the psalmist is reflecting on God's salvation activity and on creation. We're, as we think about the great works of God, if we were to substitute the resurrection for that, we're thinking about God's redemption, his rescue of us from death, and also his recreation, his new work of infusing the creation with new life and healing that will bring the world that he made very good in the beginning to be wonderful in the end. So here's the point. If the psalmist can have great joy in reflecting upon the works of God in the Exodus and in the creation account, then we as God's people post the resurrection can have an even greater joy, an even greater joy in the work of God in the resurrection of Jesus. So if the psalmist, we're arguing from the lesser to the greater, if the psalmist can erupt into a joyful song when contemplating the works of God before Jesus actually came, died, and rose from the dead, then we who live in the light post-Easter, in the light of the resurrection, must also be led into an eruption of joyful song as the people of God. We have every reason to rejoice. So how are you doing in celebration and rejoicing in Eastertide? We made, we, we made a big deal of Easter in our family this year, in particular in, in, in making a contrast between Lent and the starkness of Lent. And then Easter, Mandy and I stayed up until 2.30 in the morning, the night of the vigil, and decorated the house and hid Easter baskets and things like that, and, and got it ready so that when our kids woke up, they knew that something was different. And so we celebrated this. We've been celebrating actually for two weeks. I'm kind of a little tired of all the sweets and the things like that that we've been eating in our house, and we were on vacation this last week. And we feasted, and I didn't actually have champagne for breakfast, but we did have Lucky Charms, which in our family was quite a treat. We bought them in Lent, saved them for Easter morning. The kids saw them in the closet, in the food pantry every day. 
And when we came Easter, we had those for breakfast. And we celebrated in all these different ways. So much so that when we got to the Friday after Easter, Jameson asked me for a piece of chocolate. And I said, no, you can't have that right now. And he said, Dad, but Dad, Jesus rose from the dead. <laughs> it was hilarious. So I kind of got had by my three-year-old. Um, in a sense... Obviously, Jameson was quite right. If Jesus rose from the dead, then we should be celebrating and throwing parties and singing and giving thanks and enjoying the good things of God's creation with all vigor and fullness of joy as the people of God. And not just for 50 days of Eastertide, but as the people of God for all of time. We should be celebrating these things. And this celebration is incredibly integral and basic to our living the resurrection life and therefore accomplishing the resurrection mission. If that life doesn't arise from this basic level of joy in the Christian life, if our lives, then that resurrection life and that mission will never likely go very far if it's not flowing out of this source of celebration. The Eastern Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann writes this, but how could the church fulfill its mission? How could it be the salvation of the world if it were not, first of all and above everything else, the divine gift of joy? The fragrance of the Holy Spirit. The presence here in time of the feast, the eternal feast of the kingdom. So that is our first and primary call. So how do we live the resurrection life? It starts with joy. It starts with celebration. It starts with throwing a party. And only in that life of joy could we then bear in our bodies, in our lives, the cross that God has called us to bear in this world prior to the consummation of his kingdom. Okay, here's the reality though. For a lot of us, and I know this is true, this kind of celebration or joy is incredibly difficult. There is, if we're honest, in our hearts, layer upon layer upon layer of fear, of anxiety, of stress, of hardship, such that we find it perhaps nearly impossible to break out of all of that and to celebrate this great thing of resurrection. So how do we deal with this reality of where some of us might be here tonight? And I want to give you just a couple of thoughts coming out of Psalm 92. First, as I said, Psalm 92 is written for the Sabbath day, this day of rest. The Sabbath day was this memorial that God gave his people in time. Not a building memorial, but a a memorial in time. To mark God's reality and priority in their lives. So, here's the deal. In a world that's quick to forget God, and to make an idol out of human ingenuity and self-sufficiency, the Sabbath in what it communicates, is an incredibly powerful tool. It told God's people to stop their labors. We so quickly start to think that everything I'm doing is the thing that's the most important. It's the thing that counts. But they're told to stop their labors and to remember that they're part of a larger story. A story that started with God, that continues with God, and that ends with God. And that in that story, they are a dependent people in every way. Rooted deeply in that story and called as God's people to dwell and to reflect and to marinate in the works of God and the character of God. In fact, the righteous are referred to later in this psalm as those in verse 13 who are planted in the house of the Lord. 
Those who flourish in the courts of our God. That is, they're rooted, deeply rooted in God's story. So one of the reasons that joy can be so elusive for us is that we have become uprooted from the story of God in the world and in Christ. And we've ceased to see our lives as actually shaped by this great Paschal passage, Passover mystery that we celebrate each week. And we'll say it again tonight, Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Instead of taking our cues from this great Easter story and therefore knowing joy and celebration, we take our cues from the narratives, the smaller narratives of our own making. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm this kind of, you fill in the blank, you know, I'm this kind of, I'm, a, I'm training to be this. I'm, this, this is where I'm headed, these are my objectives, this is my ambition, these are my dreams. And that becomes the primary reality in which I live, and so to the degree that those things are being fulfilled or not fulfilled is the degree to which I'm up or down. And everything hinges upon whether that small narrative is heading in the right direction, so that when something like a sickness or something like a failure or something like my own sinfulness begins to kind of throw a a wrench in the wheel, all of a sudden I'm dropped into the dumps because I'm taking my cues from that narrative and I've become uprooted from this deeper, more lasting, more real narrative of all that God has done in history and particularly the resurrection of his son. And those things, those actions, the resurrection of Jesus no longer penetrates me and infuses me with joy. Have you been uprooted from this greater narrative? In the summer of 1995 was my first year as a whitewater rafting guide. I did a lot of training that year. We had an unusually high, high water year. In fact, it, it's not been met since in almost 20 years. It hasn't been that high since. And when the water got to its peak in mid-July of 2005, it actually, there was so much volume and so much strength in that water that it changed some of the rock formations underneath the surface of the river. So that this one rapid, which was called Big Drop, about halfway through Browns Canyon on the Arkansas River, actually changed. And when the water went back down to its normal levels, we could no longer run the river in the way that we always ran the river before. Something had fundamentally changed. And so every day as a rafting guide, from that day forward for the rest of that summer, for the rest of my rafting career, I had a reminder that this great event had taken place in the summer of 1995. And every day we went by and ran that rapid differently, we knew that something was different. That's what the resurrection is to be like for us. It's not an event that we kind of just read about in the Gospels and then kind of move on, but it's an event that actually took place in life, in the world, and in your life and in my life. Such that no day that proceeds from this point forward will ever be the same again if you have been buried with Christ and raised with Christ. Then the resurrection is that kind of daily changing event for you. And we have the font at the back of the sanctuary as we walk in. Your baptism is the, the sign, this water, this sign of the fact that you have died. You've been buried and you've been raised. I want to encourage you, every time you see that font, and if you're the kind who likes to dip your hand in and make the sign of the cross, great. If you're not, that's okay. But every time you see that, I want you to remember that that's the sign, much like that change rapid for me as a rafting guy, that your life is no longer the same. It's been changed forever because of the resurrection. Your daily life is different. Be rooted 
in that story. Be rooted in that story. You know, another, a second way that the resurrection joy, so the first way is is that we're uprooted from the story. But a second way that resurrection joy is short-circuited is when we make it contingent upon our own accomplishments. It's fascinating in Psalm 92. What is he reflecting on, verses 4 and 5? For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. By your work. At the works of your hands, we sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. How great are your works. Think about it. How often are, are you really, really joyful because of something that you accomplished in your life? Or maybe, some, maybe you're really, really not joyful because of something that you weren't able to accomplish in your life. So interesting that we, we actually tie joy to the things that we do. Again, back in that small in narrative of our own lives. And again, I don't want to say it's that those things are unimportant. They're actually very important. It's the stuff of our lives that makes up the book of the Psalms because that's what we pray from and pray through and pray into. But so often we make an idol out of those things and forget the deeper things of all that God has done. All that God has done for us in Christ. It's God's work. God's work that is the source of our joy. God's work in the resurrection. Our participation in that work of Jesus dying and rising again was primarily in the complicitness that we had in the sin that put Jesus on the cross. Otherwise, we're left to be passive bystanders watching the mighty hand of God do for us what we could never have done for ourselves. He has done it. And it is finished. And we're left to simply respond. At the work of God. And that's great news. That joy, our joy is linked not to our little accomplishments and narratives, but to God's bigger story and to God's work and all that God has done. And we respond. So that whether you walk into this place tonight feeling like a failure, feeling shackled and bound by the, the, the unfulfilled hopes and dreams of your own life, or you walk in here feeling like I'm kind of anticipating hopefulness in the next couple of weeks, or, or, or thinking that, um, that you're on top of the world. Whatever that may be, wherever you might walk in, joy can and should be yours, whatever circumstances that you find yourself in here tonight. Because joy, as the psalmist shows us, arises from the work of God. And because Jesus has been raised from the dead, whatever is going on in my life or your life today, this is a reality that is meant to bring joy into the depth of our hearts. So God has done great things. God has done great things. This calling of bearing Christ into the city of Boston, the kingdom life, this gift of joy into the city, only coheres in a heart that recognizes that God has done amazing and great things. And who as a result of his doing great things has produced by his gift in his people. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. An overwhelming sense of joy and thanksgiving for all that he has done. So God's mission depends upon resurrection life. But resurrection life depends upon resurrection joy. And resurrection joy depends, thanks be to God, not upon you and not upon me. But upon the God who raises the dead and who raised his son Jesus. So we should say to one another, but dad... Jesus rose from the dead. 
Amen.